Good morning, Exchange. Good morning. Thanks, Matt. I heard you. Love it when I can call out some names and recognize uh, voices. So, you know, if you're loud enough next week, maybe. Um, Yeah. Uh, We're really excited to start a new series today. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Uh, We're skipping uh, ahead a little bit in Revelation, but uh, we're looking at seven churches, seven letters to seven different churches. And uh, so you can turn there, scroll there. If you use your device, uh, if you uh, download a church center app, so you can find it on the Google store, on the Apple store. It's just called Church Center. uh, And it doesn't look like exchange when you first download that, but then you go into the app and you say, find my church, and it'll bring up, you know, Rollsville and that type of thing. So when you, when you do that, you're able to see registrations or calendar. Uh, you're able to also click on a little button that says sermon notes. That's pretty helpful as well. And so uh, that might be for you. If you don't have uh, a physical copy uh, of the word today, you can use that. Uh, also, there's a phrase that uh, you might hear if you've been down south uh, quite a, a while. It's, it's simply you walk into somebody's house and they say something like this, y'all eat yet? Has anybody ever said that to you guys? Y'all eat yet? Uh, and what that means is uh, I, I'm getting ready to fix you some food, right? And so today after the service, um, we have a lunch, uh, what we call Sunday table. We do this uh, once a month and it's just a way to connect with others, sit at a table uh, and to fellowship over food. We think that's really important. So uh, as we say each time, uh, if you didn't bring anything, that's perfect. It's fine. Those are going to be enough for everybody. Uh, if you did, thank you. Uh, please stay and bring home your dishes with you at the end. That's, that's our request for you. Uh, if you brought something, um, I don't want your Pyrex dishes. I don't want those. So please take them with you. Uh, probably since the dawn of social media, Every now and again, you'll run across someone that you haven't seen in a long time, or maybe you don't really even talk to, and they'll, they'll mention something about your life that, that it takes you a second that you know this about me. You know, it's like, hey, I saw that you guys were doing this, or I went on vacation last week, or whatever, and it's like, how and why do you care? You know, like, I, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things that just kind of takes, takes me by surprise every time uh, someone knows something about me that I, I didn't communicate to myself. And it's a, it can be a little unnerving, isn't it? It's like, what, what do you know and what did you see? You know? um, I think there's a portion of this passage in this letter that could cause the churches of Revelation to ask, what, what do you know, Jesus? There's a portion of these passages where Jesus comes in and each letter is directed to a different church and he says, I know your deeds. And I can imagine at that moment with that sentence, like stomach drops and they say, which ones? The good ones? The bad ones? The mediocre ones? The complacent ones? The gossipy ones? The confused ones? Which ones? And so Jesus walks into the room and he delivers these letters to these seven different churches, I think in ways that are not just to them, but for us today. 
And so as we look at this passage in, in Revelation, I think it's really important for us to understand that, that these letters were not just uh, to us, but the book of Revelation is going to help uh, shore up some of our theology and what Jesus wants to do in and through the church. But I think it's really important as we dive in that we start to recognize what Revelation is not, and we also understand what Revelation is. Is I think so many times Revelation has been stolen from us uh, and with really bad teaching, with really bad teaching that it produces this like fear of like end of the world, like just complete apocalyptic situation. And literally the star of Revelation, if you grew up in the church or around the church, is a guillotine, right? That's like, that's the main character of Revelation, that and Apache helicopters that are actually the locusts, Right? Spoiler alert, right? I don't think the locusts are Apache helicopters, right? The letters were written to the churches of Asia, and they cannot mean something for us that they did not mean for them. Think this through with me. The church cannot take this letter and hijack it to mean things for us that it did not mean. In the Old Testament prophetic books where hundreds of years before Jesus walked onto the scene, uh, the prophets would prophesy about the Messiah and they would, the hope in the Messiah, they would hope for the Messiah and they would never see the Messiah. The Messiah would come and he was brought to later generations, hundreds of years later. They were able to see those things. The people that read those words or heard those words at the very start didn't understand them fully. Everything wasn't fully expressed to them, but those words were for them. They were to bring them hope. Hey, one day, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, they are going to meet and see the Messiah, the one who has come from God himself to save us all. And so in just in that way, the people that received these letters might not understand everything that these letters were intended to say, but they don't say something that was hidden from them to generations, thousands of years later. These letters were directed to the churches of Asia. That's really important for us to know. And I think also what's really important for us to see in the book of Revelation is that it's a book to bring hope. It's a book to bring hope, not fear, to a suffering and persecuted church. And so I think Revelation helps us here in these letters as we look and see the hope that Christ gives to and through the church. So I'm going to actually start in Revelation 1, just uh, 1 through 5, and then we're going to skip ahead and talk a little bit about who the book's written to, who it's from, and uh, the time and all of that kind of stuff. Okay, so Revelation chapter one, verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to sound like a Bible scholar, uh, you, you never put plural on the, the end of this book. It's not revelations, it's revelation, right? It's like maybe your grandparents or parents uh, say the Walmarts, you know, yeah, the food lines or something like that. Uh, and you realize, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Same thing with revelation, singular. It's a singular revelation, okay? Uh, so the revelation of Jesus Christ, which gave God gave to him to show his bondservants the thing which must soon take place. 
And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and gave in testimony of Jesus Christ everything that he saw and those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things that are written in it. So immediately, even scripture saying, there's words here that, that you are expected to keep. So think about this for a second. I think in most of our circles, Revelation has been cast as this mysterious book that we can never even begin to understand. But scripture here literally opens it up with, blessed are those who hear it and read it and keep it, obey it. And he says this, for the time is near. So verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are above are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, I love this, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. So I want you to pay close attention to uh, the address here, how it's written, and who it's from. It's a message from Jesus through John in love. It says this, to him who loves us and released us from our sins from his blood. This is really important because there's going to be some strong words spoken. Words are going to be words of condemnation, uh, of rebuke, and of truth. But it's done here in love. This is how he starts it out. These are the messages. These are the words of Jesus Christ who loved you so much that he's released you from your sins through his blood, he says. It's a letter to seven churches in Asia. And I think, again, I want you to understand that these words are written for us, but they're written to these specific churches in Asia. So again, it cannot mean something different for us than it did for them. So the author, of course, there's debate on this, on which John, but a very strong percentage of our church fathers, including uh, including a couple Ignatius and Polycarp, who were actually disciples of the apostle John, uh, would affirm that this book was written by him. The same one uh, that Jesus would take on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. Uh, we read the Gospel of John. Uh, most often we hear these words in the Gospel of John, the one who was loved by Jesus, the very close friend and companion. If you remember, uh, Peter makes amends with Jesus. Ed preached that sermon on the beach, and he's told that he's going to become a martyr. And when he does, he looks back at John and he asks the question, well, what about him? And Jesus gives a strange answer and he says, if I want him to remain in church history would tell us that John was the very last disciple alive, maybe even the only one who did not die a martyr's death. Who it's written to, the churches. Now there can be uh, things that they would never see or fully understand just like that we won't like them to bring hope, to give courage, to press on until the very end. And it's written for us so that we can learn and heed from those same warnings. We have the privilege to look at their story, to see it in the context of how it was happening and apply it to our lives today. I think that they were hunkered down so hard because of the per persecution of the church that it was really hard for them to see the full picture, but we can. 
The time that they were in was very difficult. The different commentators put the book of Revelation at two different dates, really, somewhere in the 60s AD or the 90s. It's about 60 years the latest, at the latest after Christ ascended into heaven. And most scholars would put it somewhere around then, 96 AD. There were about three decades of intense persecution. So from the 60s to the 90s, I I would say that there's never been 30 years in the history of the church that may have been more difficult for the church. Intense persecution. A.D. Vespian in 67 picked up where he left off. He would actually dip Christians into oil, uh, pin them up on uh, posts, and light them on fire. We've heard the term. You've probably used them before around the 4th of July, Roman candles. This is what the emperors would do to Christians just for the sake of claiming Jesus is Lord. They were imprisoned, fed to animals. In 70 AD, that might have been the darkest year of Christian history. It was the year that Jerusalem was raided and burned to the ground. And the church history says that Paul, Peter, and uh, Timothy were all publicly executed during that time. I mean, think about this for, for just a second. If, if we started, our phones started buzzing in our pockets and we started to look at the news and we started to scroll and it was all these different Christian leaders that were we said in the news today were brought out into the streets and publicly executed, we would start to panic, wouldn't we? It's in this stage, it's in this look of life, it's in this period that the Christian church is attempting to obey Christ, to follow him, but also facing hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. In 92, uh, Domitian was made emperor, and he ordered all the citizens of Rome to worship him as God. If you had the means, then you were expected and commanded to travel to Rome, uh, pick up a piece of ends God. He actually made a law that said if any Christian were brought into court for any reason at all, Before the proceedings happened, they were forced or asked to deny their faith in Jesus Christ. And if they did not, they were automatically given the maximum sentence of whatever crime they were being accused of. So we're going through these letters and some of the churches aren't doing so well, and you can probably understand why. Intense persecution. Intense suffering. And I want you to understand what it meant to be a believer, what it meant to say Jesus is Lord actually cost them something. It wasn't a cultural norm. It wasn't something that you just do on Sundays. There wasn't a preference at stake. There wasn't some type of personal freedom or liberty that was being challenged. This was their life. I mean, what would it take for a father to go into a courtroom and know that he had the opportunity to either go back and provide and protect his family or continue to profess Jesus as Lord? Those were his choices. Think about this. His faith require him to abandon, in some ways, his family. People were burned at the stake. 
I would just say this. If the church faces persecution like this ever again, God, help us. God, help us. A couple of years ago, you know, the government asked us to put a piece of cloth on our face and we lost our minds. We lost our minds. And I'm not saying we shouldn't fight for personal liberty. I'm not saying we shouldn't fight for personal freedom. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take a stand and do something. But I am saying this, we should never say that that was ever an attack on our Christian faith. It wasn't. It wasn't. And we can like go around these side trails and all of these things. I didn't like it. But you know what I wasn't doing? I wasn't being drugged in front of a court and saying, either say see. And so I think we have to look at this in perspective. And I think we have to look at the church and we have to say, God, I need you to align my heart in certain ways to protect me in moments where my world might collapse like this. Because if I get sideways about something like this, I'll never survive in something like this. I'm incapable of it. So how it's read, I would say that we, before we dive into specific books or words of the church, specific letters, it's important to know that the the book of Revelation is not linear. We want it to be, but it's not, right? Like every way that we read stories, we read them from start to finish, chapter one to chapter 20, whatever it is. And, and it takes us through this journey. Like often, if you pay attention, if you read through the book of Revelation, it will say things like John turned and looked and saw. It's as if John is having the opportunity to appear and look through different windows and different things happening. It's not all happening in the same moment. It's not all happening linearly in the, like a calendar. It's, it's not like we would read and look at the story. There's different moments where John is being brought into this window. He's able to see these things. And then something else completely different is happening. One of those windows are these letters to the churches that we're going to be studying over the next several weeks. Now, I think you'll see some similarities in the letters. Each letter begins with a decision of Christ as it relates to the message of Christ. Christ states in each one that he knows their works. It includes a condemnation, a commendation, a rebuke, uh, an exhortation, encouraging promise, and also includes an introduction of Jesus himself. He begins with the church of Ephesus, and it's one that we know well from the book of Ephesians. It's a major city located uh, in, in a central uh, part of Asia. It had the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And we know that Paul visited Ephesus on occasion. He actually preached there, uh, planted a church there. He preached so effectively, Acts chapter 19, verse 10, says that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It literally, scripture is saying, that really no one in Ephesus was unaware of the gospel. And we also know that Paul created such an uproar because people were abandoning their false gods and idol worship. 
So we know that the Lord was moving in Ephesus. We know that God was doing something there. And so that was uh, shortly after uh, Christ's resurrection and ascension. This is decades later, and he writes this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, Jesus. So we're told in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, that Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. And the seven stars, it says, that are the angels of the churches. So there's at least seven different ideas of what these angels are. The angels which perhaps guard and protect the churches or represent them in heaven. Maybe they're at the hand, the, the hand of the Son of God. It could be language that represents pastors or shepherds, messengers. It could be the congregation, individual people within the church. Regardless, it's meant for the entire church to glean from. The seven lampstands are the churches, are the literal seven churches in Asia, as we would understand this world, the seven lampstands. And so the church of Ephesus is to reflect the light of God's holiness and love of the world. Here's what I love about this passage. Possibly one is it says this. Jesus says he walks in their midst. Did you catch that? The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Do you remember the, the last words that Jesus spoke on the mountains that we talked about last week? And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He's not distant from them, but he walks among them. Though he's seated on the throne, he continually walks among them. It's not to smite them, but to encourage them. Revelation 1, verse 5 through 6 says this, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. You get that? The one who loves us and released us from our sins. And he made us into a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. His purpose for walking among the churches isn't to catch them, it's to protect them. It's to guide them, it's to be with them. I love to care about the church. That he isn't sitting up in heaven. He is, it's not that he has seated by the, the, the throne of God, finished with his work, with his redemptive work, and says, well, you guys figured out. I taught you literally everything. You're still doubtful. You're still confused. You're going to have to figure it out. But here, decades later, he says he still walks among them. And I think this proves to us how deeply Jesus cares for his church. And I think if Jesus, who has the opportunity to stay seated on the throne of heaven, he chooses to walk among the churches, to be with them, to be concerned with them, I think it pushes us because Jesus cares so deeply for his church. We should too. 
We should, should shape ours. It's crazy that in each of these seven letters, it's clear that the church doesn't have it all together. They're broken. And the church is broken because it's filled with us. But that doesn't mean that we get to sit in a position that even Christ does not take and say, because it isn't perfect, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. We get to do that. I'll do it alone. I'll fit it in when I can. I'll make it part of my life. And it's really clear that Christ cares deeply about his church and our culture treats it like a drive-through window. If I'm close, if I'm hungry, if I want something when I'm nearby, then that's when I'll go. But Jesus paints a different picture of the church that he cares so deeply for. He's not looking at it with disgust and saying, why can't you guys get it together? Man, when you get it together and figure this thing out, then maybe I'll enter the room. No, he says, listen, I'm never going to leave you even when you're broken, even when you're not perfect, even when you're doing it almost completely wrong. I'm here with you. He says this, I know your deeds, I know your labor, I know your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. And you've put those who call themselves apostles to the test, and they are not. And you found them to be false, and uh, you have perseverance, and have endured on my account of my name, and have not become weary. So this is the commendation. This is the thing that that Christ says, I know what you're doing. I know what you've done. I know your deeds, and I'm proud of you. He says, thank you for, for not giving in, for not giving up. The church is commended not only for its labor, but also for its discernment, but refused to tolerate so-called Christians who participated in evil. They didn't blindly accept those who called themselves apostles. And so apostles here isn't probably used in the technical sense of the 12 appointed by Jesus, but would refer to those who would travel around, become missionaries, and and they would elevate themselves to a status, basically to either correct scripture or to add to it or to even remove some. And so they were saying, like, I'm an apostle, you should listen to me. And they would literally put them to the test. So the Ephesian church carefully assessed those who claimed to be messengers of Christ, exposing those who were not truly his disciples. It's sometimes said that the Ephesian church is commended for doctrinal orthodoxy, what they did according to what they believed, uh, which is certainly true. They would not accept teaching contrary to the gospel of Christ, but it, it would be a mistake to limit them to only that because their perspective was enough to identify just these things that didn't belong. Their perspective on Christ was enough to, for them. Ah, that doesn't look like Jesus. I know what you're saying. And, and if I were only going by just logic or maybe even just by what makes sense, that makes sense. But that, that doesn't sound like Jesus enough to apply this discernment to those who were coming in claiming to be speaking from Jesus. In other words, I think it's likely these false apostles uh, recommended living in a way contrary to the way of Christ. Neither their teaching nor their works was pleasing to God. It makes perfect sense for doctrine and for life, teaching, behavior, cannot ultimately be separated. You know, in our culture, 
There's people who are saying, in our culture who is saying, you can love God and live this way. You can affirm these things and still be totally good with God. Like It's like we want both. And, and Jesus literally says, whoa, 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 whoa. John actually speaks these words in, in, in uh, his letter, 1 John. You can't say that you're in the light and then walk in darkness. You, can't, you cannot do it. Those who walk in darkness but say that they live. John's words. And so I think like the church of Ephesus, we need to have a very clear spiritual discernment that when the world pushes these ideologies on us and it feels like if we don't go along with this, then we're going to get kids. I'm not going to go along with this. Then we have, might have trouble with our employer, our job, our school, our whatever. We have to say, I'm not going to walk in the darkness. I'm not going to do it. That doesn't sound like Jesus. But it's not just in what they did. Jesus acknowledges their motivation behind it and their perseverance to it. He says, you've endured on the account of my name. And you've not grown weary. I think Jesus understands that they have a high view of him. And the church has endured for him, not becoming Weary. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? I found that very interesting. You've not become weary. And to me, it's interesting. I, when I read that, I, I wondered to myself this week if the phrase church hurt existed in 96 AD. for the pastors and elders to constantly say, it doesn't sound like Jesus. It doesn't sound like Jesus. It doesn't sound like Jesus. It does not sound like Jesus. That does not sound like constantly correcting. I mean, we do it in, in, in every realm of our life, don't we? Whether it's with our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family, our in-laws, our spouse, our kids. We have a phrase, right? We say, it's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. Have you guys spoken that phrase today yet? Maybe you've not said those words. You've thought those words. It's just not worth it. And what Jesus is saying to the church of Ephesus, you have rightly determined it is worth it. When you correct people and say, that's not like Jesus, and they walk away and say, this person is a terrible person. They won't let me do this thing. They won't let me have this position. They won't let me hold the microphone and teach everybody things that don't look like Jesus. They look and say, I'm sorry and then step in line to do it again because he is worth it. We can't get tired of looking for the ways that the enemy desperately wants. But then he confronts them in their heart. You've probably read this passage before and he says this in verse four. But I have this against you. I, I, I can imagine, 
I can imagine if they were reading this letter, they're reading this letter aloud, right? But I have this against you. Can you imagine the feeling that just, ooh. They might have been proud and puffed up at the first few verses, but this phrase sucks the life out. It says, you've left your first love. You've left your first love. So the church at Ephesus had had works, they had labor, they had patience, but no love for Christ. Or at least a very weak love for Christ. It's not what we do for Christ, but the motive behind it, the incentive that counts. Ephesus had this busy church with high spiritual standards. They couldn't bear worthless people, would not listen to false teachers. The work had been difficult. They have not fainted. In every way, it was a success. Some of today's churches are busy, full calendars, weary workers. It would fit this description. But the man in the midst of the churches was missing. They had left their love for him. I want this to both encourage you and challenge you. That Jesus desperately wants a meaningful relationship with you. I want this to encourage you and to challenge you. I actually contemplated another word on this. I actually contemplated Jesus desperately desires And I actually contemplated saying and demands a meaningful relationship with you. I want that to soak in. I fear that exchange could sometimes fit the condition of this American church as well. Checking off the list, consumed with programs, getting involved with worthwhile things, things in the community, thing after thing. And I think it's not only just in our church, but in our homes, our many churches of our lives, our souls. We check off the lists and the boxes. The things that we know we're supposed to do as good little Christians. So we come to church, we maybe give or serve or both. We have a quiet time sandwiched between our scrolls and whatever we're going to be late for because we scrolled so much. I see it in us and on us. I see a confused faith and anemic relationships with Jesus. And I think this should challenge us and encourage us that Jesus, the creator of the heavens and earth, says, I want you in relationship with me. Somehow we expect the opposite. We expect Jesus to say, I don't really want to, anything to do with you. I just want you to do these things. I want you to gain me more followers. I want you to like my tweets. I, I want you to do all the things, right? Like I want you to do, 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 do. And Jesus says, hey, 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 hey. I, I need a minute with you. I need some time with you. I, 
I want to know you and I want desperately for you to know me. I mean, this sounds very familiar. You could probably pick the story. It happens in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, with two sisters named Martha and Mary. You remember this story? Now, as they were traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who was also seated at the Lord's feet and was listening to his word. Gracious. I want you to get the picture here. Jesus enters your home. Jesus enters your home. And Mary gets so close, and it annoys her sister. The same annoyance, like when your spouse is doing something, you're, you know, like working really hard, maybe doing the dishes, cooking dinner, you know, and your spouse is doing something like scrolling. You're like, I could use some help. Martha's doing all the things, and Mary's just sitting. So Martha actually comes to Jesus, says to him, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do the serving by myself? Tell her to help. Tell her, Jesus. Tell her now. I just love this. And said to her, Martha. I love this that he speaks her name twice. It's, it's almost like he has to snap her out of it. Martha. And then he speaks his, her name again, I think almost to engage her. I, I just imagine that Jesus cuts her off with the first Martha. Martha, are you worried and distracted by many things? But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which should not be taken away from her. Jesus says, Martha, Mary's doing what she was created to do. There's a story of a couple of desert fathers. If you've ever uh, kind of studied anything about them, basically is where monks came in to... to um, you know, existence of leaving the cities, going out into these deserts, building these communities, uh, establishing very strict orders or rules, uh, establishing a following, cutting life down to the bare necessities in order to only commune with Jesus. And there's a story uh, surrounding two of them, Father Alman, uh, who came to Father Anthony one day and said, since my rule is stricter than yours, meaning his, his guidelines, what he does and with his followers and all those things, but how is it that your name is better known amongst men than mine? To which Father Anthony answered, it's because I love Jesus more than you. I think this is why Jesus warned us that there's going to be many who come to him in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And then they rattle off a very impressive list, actually a very impressive list, things that I've never done. Didn't we drive out many demons in your name? Didn't we do many miracles in your name? They rattled off, I would say, a very impressive resume. In fact, most churches, if those were proven to be true, if those three things were proven to be true and a pa like a pastor was needed in a church, those three would be like the qualifying things, right? Like oh, you've done these things? Yes, come and teach us. Do you remember the searing words that Jesus speaks? 
I never, I never knew you. I never knew you. They were tied up in what they were doing rather than who they were serving or loving. I think in a way they were trying to earn his favor rather than recognizing that there wasn't anything that they could do to earn it. I think these passages should warn us. They should wake us up. They should challenge our hearts and motivation of the things of those of us who live in the Bible Belt and know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go to church. We're supposed to love God. We're supposed to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays. Like, I get it. I know it. I know all the things, right? This should cut us to the heart. And I think this is a good gift from Jesus. I want you to know and understand that Jesus doesn't say, you fools, you've left your first love and it can never be found again. He doesn't say, you so foolish for walking away. You made that choice, and now there's no turning back. Jesus is literally in the posture of begging them. Would you, would you turn? Would you consider? Would you remember your first love? It's not for the sake of, of rebuking them, to, to condemn them, to, of wooing them and asking them, pleading with them to return. Let me tell you, if this is you today, you're in good company. I would venture to say that every one of us in this room has had a season in our lives where we have left our first love. It's not something that we should be ashamed of. It's something that we should repent of and run to the mercy of God. It's something that we shouldn't just run away from and just say, well, I'll busy myself with more things. I'll just fill my calendar with more things. I'll just do more things. It's something that I would say that we need to pray and ask God, God, would you help me desire you? You know, Scripture says that no one actually desires this, the, the, God unless the Spirit calls him. Did you know right now, I want, to, I want to bring in peace a little bit. Maybe you're in the spot to say like, I, I don't have this relationship with God, but I want to want it. I don't even know if I'm in a position where I want it, where, you, where all you can do is want to want it. Let me encourage you with this. That means... The Spirit is working in your life. That means there's this glimmer of light drilling through a dark heart. That's good news. Work with that. Work with the want to want it. Be honest with God. 
and say, God, you know my heart. I don't want it right now, but I want to want it. Would you help me move from wanting to want it to actually wanting it? This is good news because it means the Spirit is working in you. And I think all it takes is one step of obedience. Today, tomorrow, one step of obedience today. I would encourage you, when it's time to respond, I would say, don't wait, don't sit in your chair, don't, don't, don't even asking someone to come along with you in prayer praying over you. You know what I love about our prayer team that, that wait for us in the back is it's not like a one and done prayer. We, we're, we're training people to take those requests before the Lord all week long. So when you wake up on a, on a dark Tuesday morning and you don't want to want it, there's someone who has committed to pray for you. That says, God, would you wake this person up with a desire for you this morning? That's a good thing. That's a really good thing where someone is invited in to ask the Holy Spirit, don't give up, Holy Spirit. Don't give up. Help them want to want you. God's people were in this position. Judah, at one point, the, the prophet Jeremiah says this to them. He says, go and proclaim the ears of Jerusalem, saying, this is what the Lord says. I remember regarding you the devotion of your youth, your love when you were a bride, you're following after me in the wilderness through a land not sown. It's just, they just loved God at some point so much they were willing to go and do whatever he asked. It wasn't about what they had. It wasn't about the land. It was about this relationship with him. And he speaks the same thing in Revelation, almost. He says, losing their first love. He says this, therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place and let you repent. I think traditionally, I always thought of this. I didn't understand the lampposts are the seven uh, churches who are shedding light on the world, right? I always thought of this. I'm going to remove your lampstand as if my salvation was going to be taken away. That's not the context. The context is your witness, your mission, your ability to partner in the mission of God. That's going to be taken away. You're going to be ineffective, powerless. Why? Because you're just doing stuff. There's no power in what you have. There's no power in what you're doing. You're doing stuff and you're far from God. He said, I'm not going to let that happen. I want to point you back to Ephesians 1 verse 15. These are some of the things that they were doing at first. He says, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for the saints, not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that your heart uh, may be enlightened so that you will know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory and of the inheritance of the saints. What is the boundless greatness of his power of those who believe? He says, I pray that these continue to abound. They're growing in their relationship with Jesus. 
And these are in accordance with the working of his strength, the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. So over the next course of the next few months, we're going to do our best exchange to learn from these letters, to grow from these letters, and be changed from these letters. And I fear that because right now our church and the the American church is not living in a time of massive persecution, we can get lazy and complacent. And many of us, myself included, can attach the rest of our life. It's as if that it's an aspect of our life, but it's not our life. I think sometimes I can see this at exchange. I'm going to ask for permission to, to just speak boldly. And I'm going to just say, Please don't be offended. Please don't be offended. Okay. When's the last time that you were 15 minutes late for a movie? I mean, this is important. It's important, those first 15 minutes are designed to help point you in the direction of where we're going. And it's not, I'm not, I want, I want to be clear, I'm not associating our love for Jesus with, with timeliness. Okay. I want to be clear. But I do think when the sun, our relationship to Jesus is kind of like a hurry up and let me do this and check this off and let me do this and do that, then I think it says something about where we're at. Right? When I wake up in the morning and I choose to scroll for 30 minutes, right? And then I realize I've scrolled for 30 minutes and I've got to get ready, but I still need to do my quiet time. And so I'm like, okay, maybe a, maybe a, Psalm, real quick. It, it says something. About, it says something. When it's like, let's just do all the things. Like, there, there's reasons. There's reasons why church is not. I want you to be very clear on this. Church is not listening to a sermon. Church is not singing songs. If that were the case, then we could do it at home or in our cars. That's not what church is. But I fear the American culture is desperately training us to believe that to be true. We desperately need this. We desperately need each other. 
We desperately need to be known, desperately need to know others so that we can bear one another's burdens. We desperately, whether you believe it or not, need to hear people around you sing songs over you. You need to train your mouths to sing so that your hearts believe it this week. But I think our culture and just our busyness trains us to just treat it as if something that like we do if we're in town. I think to survive the next decades of this Christian life in America, I think we need a realignment. I just don't think we'll survive it if we approach it as an attachment to our lives. If you do, your kids won't. I'll say it that way. Starting in June, I'm gonna challenge you guys. Uh, so two weeks away, we gave a buffer week to start to train ourselves. Starting in June, we're, get, we're actually going to do something um, that is a little bit different. Uh, we'll probably do it for the duration of the summer. Uh, we're going to call it the 10 at 10. The 10 at 10. It's the first 10 minutes of our service that starts at 10 o'clock. Right. Especially uh, in prayer. We're going to begin at 10 o'clock. We're going to pray together as a people for 10 minutes over certain things. And we're literally going to invite the power of God into our service. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the condition of a church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer. The prayer meeting is the graceometer. And from it, we may judge the amount of divine working among people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he is not there, then one of the first tokens of his absence will be the absence in prayer. And so we're going to pray. And I'm asking you to be here. I'm asking you to get your children checked in between 945 and and 9.55. Grab your coffee from 9.50 to 9.59 and then be in here to pray. We're going to do it together and we're going to push after Christ together. Are you with me, exchange? Here's what I love. He ends this letter with this, but I have, but you have this. You hate the deeds of Nickelodeons. Nickelodeons. <laughs> I had this moment where I was pushing you guys to pray. Uh, scholars really don't know who they were, or what they were doing. You know, it, most likely they were they were teaching. Either the, the, the church could live contrary to the Christian faith in ways of sexual immorality or 
or something of that sort, or some scholars believe they were teaching like the priests and pastors had this superior relationship to God than anyone else, and it was like this system. Regardless of what it was, it was anti-scripture, it was anti-Jesus, and Jesus says, I also hate their deeds. And the one who has an ear, let him hear, and the Spirit says to the church, is the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat from a tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's a really interesting story as the, the, these guys prepare to play um, uh, the um, BBC uh, that happened at a wedding. And for one almost groom in India, a simple math problem was something he might never recover from. Lovely, the bride having doubts at the altar about the education of her prospective spouse who was arranged, asked her soon-to-be husband a simple math equation at the altar. What is 15 plus 6? It's a true story. Ram Baron, I hate that his name is mentioned. If you know him, I'm sorry. Uh, Couldn't solve the problem. He answered 17. And the lovely spouse uh, bride walked out of her own wedding. Her father commented, the groom's family kept us in the dark about his poor education. Even a first grader could answer this. What I love about this story is it's literally the exact opposite of Jesus and the church. He knows that we will most likely get every answer wrong. And he still says, I'm here waiting. He desperately desires a relationship with you. As our team leads us, I would encourage you, I would beg you, let someone pray with you today. Let someone pray with you today that you would want to want him.